Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the gigantic task of discussing in story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we again have our three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Doctor Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan, who has seen several episodes, but has not previously read any of the books except for one, and this time it's none other than Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, we have the novice fan, who has seen little to none of the original series and previously read none of the books except for one. And again, that is going to be the wonderful and glamorous Jenny Ingersoll. Hello, Jenny. Hello, the complete interloper interfering again. (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. You're welcome here just as much as anybody else. Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) Yes. Today... We're looking at the first published novelization of the third Doctor Who story. No, that's not true. Let me try that again. (laughs) We are looking at the novel. I know. Lies, lies, lies. Okay, we're going to try this again. One, two, three. Today, we're looking at the first published novelization of the fourth Doctor Who story, Marco uh, Polo. Why did I do that? All right, we're going to try this one more time. I mean, I think it's charming, but go for it. (laughs) Okay, well, I might leave it in. Uh, Today, we're looking at the first published novelization of the fourth Doctor Who story, Doctor Who, Marco Polo. There's just a dash there, by the way. So it's not Doctor Who and Marco Polo, or even Doctor Who versus Marco Polo, which might actually be more accurate. Anyway, without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who Marco Polo, written by John Lucarotti and adapted from his own script that aired from 22264 to 4464, published by Target Books in 1985. As of this recording in January of 2017, this title is currently out of print, 144 pages. Alright, a couple of stories to tell you, as usual. Yay, story time! Well, not... mm-hmm. Yes, it is. When I was a wee lad of 15 in 1985, oh which is, I think this... I know, I know. I wasn't born know. yet, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> I know neither of you were. So I was born in 85. But... Oh, 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 I was born in 86. Dear. Okay. God. Yeah. My embarrassment was born in 1985. <laughs> when I was a wee lad of 15 in that year, the same year that I sent that letter to Nigel Robinson, in fact, about wanting to novelize uh, books for uh, Target, I convinced my parents to let me get a subscription to the new Doctor Who books through a British mail order company, which was quite a feat, given how poor we were, and given that the subscription for six books came out to about $35 or so. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was way beyond our budget at the time. But the best part was that I would get the books shipped to me within days of their being published in England, which made me very happy. Unfortunately, this was the first book I got in that subscription, which made me very unhappy (laughs) for reasons which we will get into soon enough. But first, a bit about John Lucarotti. Because we're reading these in story order rather than in publication order, he's the first original author we're reading who's adapting his own work. Hmm. First one to do it in in a story order. He was born in 1926 in England, but had an extensive career writing for Canadian television before returning to the UK and writing even more there. In addition to the three stories he did for Doctor Who, which are Marco Polo, The Aztecs, and The Massacre, he wrote ten episodes of a little show you may have heard of from the 60s called The Avengers. Not the one with Captain America and the Hulk, but with... uh, Uh, John Steed and Emma Peel. Mm -hmm. Some of those episodes he did were extremely good. He actually novelized The Aztecs first, publishing it in September of 1984, and then he published this one in April of 1985, which suggests a really fast turnaround, and that might actually explain a few things. He didn't do The Massacre until 1987, and by then he decided to go off book a little more than he does with these first two books with mixed results. And, of course, he died in 1994. All right, so, overall impressions. Uh, Jenny, we started with you last time, so let's start with Dalton this time. Um, I know you and I have spoken a little bit about this one um, a couple of days ago. Uh, I I enjoyed it. I liked, I liked the, like, adventure aspect of it. It did feel a little long once I finally finished. I was like, well, that for that ending, uh, why did it take so long to get there? 
but um, <laughs> um, no, I enjoyed it. I, I'm I'm a an action fan. I'm a, an adventure fan. So uh, I'm a history fan or buff or whatever. Um, so so hearing about that and kind of immersing myself with that world um, was interesting. So I enjoyed it, and I looked at it as as kind of um, serialized. It, it kind of when I when I talked to you about it, we kind of said it was like a travel log. It kind of was like you know star date. Um, mm-hmm. so exactly. Yeah. I, I liked that though. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a little, a little longer of a read. I had to read it over a couple of days as opposed to edge of destruction, which I read in one sitting. Um, but I got through it and I, I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed it overall. Okay. Jenny, how about you? I really enjoyed this one. Um, and oh. it was really gratifying. And of course for, for listeners, we completed the Edge of Destruction podcast and then moved on to this. Um, so I read these in, in somewhat close succession. And I was right away struck. I'm like, oh, gosh, like, this is good. Um, it's immediately funny, just in the very beginning, where they're kind of talking about the Fahrenheit or centigrade. And um, who is it that says this? Ian says it's, oh, 36 degrees of frost. I'm chilly. And then Susan is like asking this as a location. Chilly, where chilly? Um, and <laughs> right away, I'm, I was like, this is funny. This is good. Um, and continually, I just loved the scope of it. And maybe it was also just a, inherently because the, in the previous narrative we're confined just to the, the ship. But now all of a sudden we get to go outside of it. We're in a snowy place. We're in an oasis. We're in a desert. Then we get to actually meet you know, the Kublai Khan character, which I actually wasn't anticipating. I thought, oh, this narrative will end before that happens. But then it was like, oh, no, we oh. actually get to go here. Cool. And there was so much and so many um, narrative threads kind of going on at the same time. I was much more, um, much more impressed. Okay. A lot of that may come from the fact that this story is much longer than Edge of Destruction. It is a seven-part serial. Ah. So... Each of those chapters, well, most of the chapters, correspond to a separate episode oh, okay. of the televised story. Okay. The difficulty is that the original televised story no longer exists. Mm-hmm. Um, the BBC had a policy, a really awful policy in the 70s, and of erasing videotapes, the original master tapes, because videotape was so damn expensive at the time. And unless kinescopes were made of the episodes for overseas sales, where they would literally point a film camera at a television screen and record it, (laughs) there there are no copies left of the uh, story. What a shame. And And luckily, that means we have a huge amount of Hartnell episodes and Troughton episodes from the 60s that no longer exist. Luckily, some of them have been recovered, you know, places like Singapore and such. Marco Polo has yet to be recovered. Hmm, too bad. Yeah. The only things that we have are off-air audio recordings... Uh, done by a few fans, uh, Graham Strong being the one who is credited with really having saved the story from obscurity because of his audio recordings. And then in the, I believe it was late 2000s, early 2010s, they discovered that telesnaps exist of the story. And here's just something that I find fascinating. That if you were a director at the BBC in the 1960s, you could not just have, you know, a reel that you would send out to prospective employers. You couldn't just send them a videotape mm. or a film of your work. Mm. You instead had to hire a photographer to photograph the story as it was airing on television. Again, pointing a camera right at the screen and taking representative shots. <laughs> And, and these were called telesnaps. And, yeah, and for the longest time, these were not thought to have existed for Marco Polo. And it turns out that they did. Hmm. So we do have a visual record of the story. We have the audio of the story. What we don't have is the actual story. Hmm. And we have some beautiful, full-color photos uh, from behind the scenes. And I'll put those up on the uh, Facebook page, of course, so that everybody can see them, which is how we know that they really spent a lot of money on the story. They they wanted this to be their masterpiece, which is why it took so long to get it going. But well, um, I can see that because it's quite a you know kind of frolicking tale. Yeah, <laughs> frolicking. Yeah, it, it's just it's sprawling like, and it goes everywhere. Um, it's it's really has the potential to do that. Yeah, 
which is probably why I find the cover of this book to be so odd. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start there. <laughs> Let's talk about the cover. That weird... Uh, how would you describe this cover? Uh, well, the logo is different. The logo is not the, yes. the one that we saw before. This one looks like uh, bubblegum. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's called the Neon Tube logo for obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah this yeah. is like the Pepto-Bismol logo. Um, I, don't, yeah. I don't even know. Or intestine, color, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it looks like small intestine or something. The color doesn't scream neon to me, but I get what they're, they're going for. I get it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. The portraits at the bottom just seem kind of like, um, like this is going to be a soap opera in a way. This, this is like, um, everyone's kind of looking in different directions. They all look very dramatic. There's horse riders and, uh, big banners. I can't tell who oh. we're supposed to, like, if the, the big, you know, if um, Marco Polo is supposed to be the one who's actually in the top right. Although I think he sort of looks yeah. like an aged, like, 70s Elvis. Um, I don't... <laughs> I yeah. don't know. Um, he reminds me of like someone, like an older actor past their prime. But then I, maybe the the person below him is supposed to be Tigana. Um, I assume the yes. woman is um, Pink Cho, Cho, Pink Cho, right? Yeah. Um, but I'm sort of disappointed we don't get to see um, Barbara or, or Ian or anyone because you know these are the characters that I'm getting to know. I I want to know what they look like or what somebody else thinks. They yeah. Look like. And I think that's the result of this weird in-house policy they had at Target for the longest time, that they would not... Originally, they would put the uh, the face of whatever actor was playing the Doctor at that time oh. on, and then they went to another policy where they decided that we're not they're not going to put the likenesses of any actors on the cover, because then you have to pay uh, fees. Oh, okay. I, yeah, that makes total sense. Exactly. And by this point... I guess they decided that Mark Eaton, who played Marco Polo, wouldn't ask for that much. And I can't remember the name of the actor who played Tagana, but I remember Xenia Morton, who plays Pincho, is in the lower right-hand corner. Uh, science fiction fans will know her from another science fiction property. She was on Space 1999 in the late 70s, mm. which is another show I grew up with as a kid, but unfortunately came back to and realized it's <laughs> it's not age <ageful. laughs> it's really kind of awful at some point we'll have to talk about that i'm sure but um yeah there's no there is no picture of the hartnell doctor there's no picture of the companions there's no way of knowing that this is a hartnell story unless you you know go into the cover and you open it and it says uh yeah there it is uh the fact that lucarati actually dedicates this book in fond memory of the inimitable original William Bill Hartnell. Oh. Which is awfully sweet. Yeah, that this is one of the few books that actually has a, a dedication like that. I, I kind of like that. Not included in the PDF. Yeah, not gross. It's not, is nope. it? Really? No. Nope. Oh, you're missing out. Okay, I will put a picture of this <laughs> up on the Facebook page because that's where we dump everything that we want you to see. Um, of course, you two aren't going to get to see it for a while, but if you really want to, you can come see my copy. But uh, those of you listening at home will already be able to see it. <laughs> yes, can go straight to the Facebook page and see it. And of course, that's where you will comment to be part of the fourth Target book giveaway, which we'll talk about a little later on. Let's talk about that first chapter. Um, Jenny, you said that you saw a lot of humor in this first chapter and a lot of just getting on with the uh, action yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we talked last time about the fact that uh, the last bit of Edge of Destruction, the conclusion, is a direct lead into the story, and yet it's nothing like the first chapter of this book. It's hard to imagine that they're both the opening of the same story. Yeah, and even the tone of the characters, I thought, completely different. Um, all of a sudden, you know, Ian is like a science genius, um, whereas yeah. before I felt he was kind of a dullard and now, you know, Barbara can't do anything more than follow some footprints and then later on go wander off into a cave without thinking what could possibly, you know, happen to her. Um, she's reduced yeah. to a really kind of stock female character, which is yeah, unfortunate because so they thought that the strength of Lucarati's prose is so much more, but I'm like, ah, if only I could take, you know, um, Robinson's treatment of of women and stick it in this then it would be perfect but you know 
Such is life. Yeah, that is kind of... In fact, did you notice that too, Dalton? The way that Lucarati treats Barbara in this Oh, book? yeah, yeah. It was it was instantly noticeable how she she was... She just, she just took a back seat um, to everything for the most part. Like that, yeah, the scene where she... The, the cave, like that's about it. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, of all the characters, I'd say the one that comes across best in this is Susan. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but... You sound like you disagree. No, I, you're right. I mean, I had to think about it for a second, but I, I do think that the relationship between her and Ping Cho is nice. And the especially the fact that the doctor, for whatever reason, in, well, maybe not whatever reason, but he's suspicious of Ping Cho for the entire time. And maybe rightly so, we we get that information from um, the edge of destruction that he has trouble trusting people in the past. But it turns out that little relationship between these two young women to be, you know, pivotal to, to everything that goes right for them, actually. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it's the one thing that saves their bacon in the yes. end is that they're able to trust her. Yeah, I would say that it's definitely one of the better developed parts of the book, that relationship between the two of them. And it's nice to, you know, this is a, the, the whole Bechdel testing, it's nice to see two female characters just enjoying each other's company and not trying to snipe each other or sit there talking about men all day, which they do a little bit, but it is, it's in context of, of the narrative of Ping Cho's yeah. um, unfortunate, shitty marriage. <laughs> Am I yeah. allowed to swear <laughs> yes. on this? I'm sorry, I've just been... Oh yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I, I can bleep it out if I need to. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Dalton, you were about to say something? No, I was just going to say, yeah, it was interesting to see the two of them just, like, just be real people that were kind of just, like, trying to understand each other. Kind of like the way, like, like I, I mentioned in the previous podcast about how Bar when Barbara and Susan were sitting together, they were talking to each other. They were getting to know each other. They were seeing eye to eye. They were getting on a personal level. Um, and you see mm -hmm. that, again, here with Susan and Ping Cho's relationship with the way that they... They build this trust and this camaraderie and this like spirit of adventure in a way, you know, they, oh, yeah. they, they have their own stories to tell. So, yeah, admittedly, it does get them into some trouble at times. I mean, well, the section with the singing sands, for instance, when they uh, go out when they really should not be out at all. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 very sweet. I, I find especially moments like in chapter four, uh Ping Cho's misunderstanding of Susan's well, frankly, uncharacteristic use of sixties slide. I thought that. I was like, followed. where did this come from all of a sudden? But <laughs> I accepted yeah. it because it was funny. Yeah. I was well I was listening to the audio of that episode earlier today because I wanted to get a better sense of the televised story. And I think all she says is, it's crazy. She doesn't say, I dig this. So <laughs> to have her say, I dig this, which I don't necessarily associate with teenagers in 1964. <laughs> I do for the later 60s, but she says it's crazy. And Ping Cho says, what's insane about it? And it's just really cute yeah. you know, that they have that. What are you excavating? I said, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yes, what are you excavating? Yes. And of course, she does not say that in... Uh, the audio is kind of rough in those episodes, but I don't think she actually says that. And it certainly makes it better, better than, say, having the doctor say that they're finally having a proper meal when the women are cooking. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I just wanted to slap him. Really do. Uh, every once in a while, the sexism of the age will just seep through <laughs> these stories, yeah. and there's just no way around yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> However, you notice that um, it's also through Susan's viewpoint that you get some idea of the gender politics and of the time, that it's in their dialogue together that Susan shows how aghast she is that women her age, say 15, are treated in, what was it, 13th century? Yes. Yeah. For, or 14th, yeah. 13th. That one, 13th. And that she should have to marry a guy who is old enough to be her grandfather. And the same <clears throat> author, Lucarati, is going to do a similar gloss on Susan later in the Aztecs when she is almost forced to marry somebody oh. against her will. Yeah, so it's interesting, spoiler alert for both of you, <laughs> that when the when Susan finally does leave the show, it's to marry a guy. Oh yeah, uh, that, that's not surprising. 
Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a shame, really, but they had to get rid of her, so there you go. I mean, it was either marriage or death. Um, maybe they're synonymous, I don't know, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah. Oh, my! I, I, I'm not going to comment, because we know who's married on this podcast. No, no, so. I, I'm, I'm very happily married. I, I'm speaking more to what marriage might have been in the 60s. Um, oh, oh, Or how, okay. you know, she would have been... Who knows whether the character wanted to leave the show? I don't know about the politics of that that show at the time. Okay, so not from personal experience. No, oh God, no. Okay, that's fine. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> um, how do y'all feel about the way the story the way the story is told? Mm. And I guess what I'm getting at is Lucarati's style of writing, because Jenny, you said earlier in the previous podcast, but also in this one that you really do like Lucarati's style of writing much better than he did Robinson's. Yeah, I really, I liked this quite a lot. Um, that there's so much, and you said that maybe this was a function of two, this being several episodes condensed into one long narrative. But I, I think even it's the strength of the writing that right away, and I, I had this in notes that I was taking, I mean, it was on... Where, where was this? I wrote this down. I'm like way in the early pages that already there's so many um, threads kind of going on. Yeah, this is like by page mm-hmm. 15 that already there's kind of the conflict about the TARDIS is broken. Um, they have to keep up the ruse that they're not, that they're just these regular time travelers, or they're regular travelers and not time travelers. That... There's right. Pincho and Susan's differing ideas about marriage. There's kind of these different things already going on. And the situation, even what enters them into the narrative about like, oh, we're here and something is broken and I have to fix it. It's explained so quickly. And that's how easily it should, you know, how easy it should be to enter into a narrative. Like it shouldn't need to kind of be this this long drawn out thing and i do understand that in the edge of destruction like that's kind of the whole point is like what is happening with the ship but we discussed in the last episode that we didn't even know really couldn't even really understand by the whole end of the book like what had happened to the ship (laughs) in some sense but in this narrative we're so easily inserted it was so smooth and that i think continued to be the case um and a strength throughout the entire book Okay, Dalton, how are you feeling about it? You and I talked about how much you were enjoying the book. Yeah, I um, which specifically talk about his writing. Um, writing. Uh-huh. Yeah, I like. I feel like there's a lot more detail. The way that he ex- yes. he he talks about the landscape and the places they are, and he talks about the architecture and how lush and lavish everything is in these palaces. Um, um, talking about the cave and describing that when they're in there. Um, the writing style is completely different. It's it's like night and day. Um, but again, like like you already discussed, he had a lot more freedom and a lot more space to talk about this. It was a longer story, so he had he you know he he had a lot more to chew on. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting because even inside of that, there's some moments that I you know actually stopped and I made note that I said this is a really lovely moment. Just I I didn't even I don't need to know right now that I'm in any particular type of narrative that it's Doctor Who. This is just a, a lovely moment. Like, this is on um, the beginning of, what is this, chapter chapter two for us, that Ian is standing outside of the tent and looking up at the oh, stars. Yeah. And it says how the stars appear to be so close, he felt he could reach up and touch them. Um, it gives us this nice onomatopoeia about the heart and that he couldn't identify it at first, but then realized it right, was his heart right. and then he came back in. And Marco Polo asks him, did you touch a star? Which is such a strange question to ask, but also (laughs) immediately characterizes Marco Polo for us and the relationship that he's willing to have with these travelers, that he stands up for them. He is, you know, perhaps has been uh, kind of off screen, so to speak, like off, off words that we can't see that he's doing this, but we could imagine it. Maybe he was watching Ian look at the stars and decided to ask him this. And then Ian can reply in kind, oh, almost, but my heart said no. And they have a moment of understanding that really characterizes the relationship. And then, of course, right away, Tagano's face remained impassive. You you were reminded that that's going to be a point of conflict. Um, All of this is just accomplished so speedily and in such a lovely way. Yeah, Yeah. I I made note of that particular moment, too, because it it is just gorgeous and there are a few really gorgeous moments in this book and before i 
Uh, before I get into the reasons why I disagree with both of you, um, <laughs> I do want us to talk about what other moments in this book just struck you in that way of just being really great character moments or really great moments of description or what have you. Uh, I really love at the end when they're talking, I mean, just jumping way, 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 way ahead um, with the Empress and the, just how she was characterized as being kind of... Um, oh, I love the Empress. She yeah. she just seems very magical and very very much. Um, I've no, I've I, I've seen characters like this come up again and again in the new series of these strong female characters that are very whimsical and very much kind of um, old souls in a way. Like they kind of just understand the universe and the way things work and how things will just you know. Um, I just loved yes. that about her. She just she was so easy and just like perfect. She can't be too easy, though, because uh, Kublai Khan himself is terrified of her. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's kind of the point, that like she is so all-knowing and so just like understanding of things and how they work. Yeah, I really, I really liked her. I really liked the scene of, the, of, of Kublai Khan and, and the Doctor sneaking in to go play backgammon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, and the, and the scene where they first meet. Yes, and the kowtowing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, is that's easily the best scene in the whole book for me. Well, and it's so funny because you think you're like, okay, this um, Marco Polo is taking the ship to give to this person. In some way, the Kublai Khan is being pitted as a direct antagonist to the Doctor, and yet they end up being friends and very similar, which yeah. I think is so yes. funny. Yeah, and come to think of it, <clears throat> and I think I may actually have uh, mentioned this to you when we talked a few days ago, Dalton, the... Um, that the historical Kublai Khan, yeah, nothing like this. No, no, I mean, <laughs> I, yeah, no, no. <laughs> yeah, he's he was much more bloodthirsty than this. For that matter, if we get into the historical accuracy of this book in total, you could probably say the same thing about Marco Polo himself, because the, the accounts vary wildly about how close he was to the Khan and all of that, and whether he actually inflated his own importance in the court. But we weren't talking about that. We were talking <laughs> about wonderful moments in the book. Um, other fantastically uh, magical moments or characters or situations? Um, I liked when they got to the Oasis and the doctor very casually is like, oh, it's so clean around here. Not a cinder to be found. And he implying then that, you know, Tigana said, oh, I, I couldn't do anything. There were these bandits here. And the doctor being like, well, if there were bandits, they would have had a fire and there's no fire. So clearly Tigana, you're just lying. And um, yeah. I liked that because it was in such contrast to the way that the doctor presented himself in Edge of Destruction, which is to be so pompous kind of about everything you knew and yet not really knowing all that much. And here I actually buy it. I'm like, okay, the doctor knows a lot of things. He's observant, um, but he doesn't have to be completely, you know, um, arrogant about it. And mm -hmm. I I liked his his quiet way of being authoritative about things. Um, you know, still, sure, he, he could be a little bit stubborn, but it was much more... I think, believable. Um, I liked seeing that yeah. throughout all of this. Yeah, in fact, I, I have a note on that about Chapter 6, that the Doctor finally gets to be the Doctor at the beginning of this chapter. Dalton, you probably will agree with us having seen the later series, that that's, that really is kind of a preview of how what that character becomes later on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, just... It's it's so weird knowing what he becomes and who he becomes, but seeing bits of it early on in the story, yeah. um, and yeah, see, exactly. seeing seeing the roots of it there, um, yeah, it just it makes me more interested to go back and and read more of of the old stories um, and familiarize mm -hmm. myself with them and and see what else really ties in and what else follows through and carries on. Yeah, what what I find strange though is that Lucarati, uh, by the time he's writing this book in 85, he knows something of the history of the show by that point, too. And there's nothing like what Nigel Robinson did in the previous book, where he's making little hints as to even the fact that the Doctor and Susan are alien, or any uh, that the Doctor, for instance, when he's... Uh, kind of laid low by all the horse riding which is just clever <laughs> but you don't get a sense that he's also 
probably feeling it more than Kublai Khan because at this point he's probably more more around the age of 450 years old. So <laughs> True. You, you don't get a lot of that. Um, any other bits that were particularly well done to you? Um, I really liked the description of um, what uh, the messenger, uh, what's his name, Ling Tao. Uh, Ling Tao. Um, mm-hmm. Whenever they're describing him riding in and you can hear the bells jingling. Yeah. Um, I really liked that description and that, and that like... It, yeah, it seemed kind of romantic and like romantic in the the like writing way. Romantic. Yeah. It was very just like, oh, that's a good detail. That's a that's a good way to just in- introduce this character. Yeah, I really liked that. Mm-hmm. I I like Ling Tao, but I have to admit, I don't I don't have much of an impression of him except that he's apparently handsome and fit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we don't know very much about him aside no. from that. In fact, none of the characters really gets any sort of physical description, and that's one of the things that I find problematic about well all of the novelizations, but definitely this one that you really just have no sense of what anybody looks like. Yeah. Um, and that would be useful. Yes. I mean, you get some sense of what Ping Cho looks like, but I, I suspect that's more to do with the fact that she's on the cover. Right. I was <laughs> going to say, this is another know. Um, you know, issue with, with actors and them wanting to remain ambiguous for that reason. I guess so. I guess that's what it is. Because that's one of the issues that I have with Lucarati's prose, but... <clears throat> I'm not going to talk about that just yet, because <laughs> I told myself I wouldn't. Um, I'm still looking for things that are good about it. Oh, in Chapter 6, in Chapter 6, when we get Ping Cho's story, when she tells the story of, um, uh, is it Aladdin yes. that she tells yes. the story yeah. of? Yeah. Now, granted, it, it was likely, it was much more fun hearing that being acted out in the audio version than to read it as a bit of free verse. And the audio version really is gorgeous, but it feels like there are very few moments of what I'd call local color in the book like that. It seems like there should be more than just descriptions of the food <laughs> that they read. Although I do enjoy like, that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I got very hungry reading Yeah, this no, you're saying that reminded me of, of kind of the other strength of this, which when earlier in the the podcast on edge of discretion destruction you talked about these um episodes being purposed towards an educational um kind of yes. kind of goal and this i can definitely right. see um would have that merit because they're going to different places they're talking about the great wall of china you know they're kind of correcting their own um, anachronisms and assumptions about what this is. Like, oh, China, I've never heard of that. Oh, of course, it's that other thing, um, Carthay or whatever. It's Carthay, yeah. Cafe. yeah. Um, that I thought was all clever and interesting um, and really, really cool because I, I don't know much of, at all about the, the 1200s. <laughs> um, now, maybe it's not <laughs> historically like quite accurate, but I feel like if I were a a person or a young person watching this, it would give me enough to go maybe do some research on my own, which is always cool. Well, here's the ironic thing about the educational remit of the early Doctor Who stories. It was teaching science and it was teaching history, which is why uh, Ian is a science teacher and Barbara is a history teacher. Except it invariably got the history wrong. <laughs> and it invariably got the science wrong. Yeah, of you know. So it's like, um, guys, why why did you think this was a good idea? <laughs> but um, yeah, in fact there have been in fact I I will pro- I will find these and I will link them on our Facebook page, but there have been blog posts written by other people about the inaccuracies in the story, especially when it comes to the journey, because there's certain parts of this journey that simply should not have been possible mm. according to people that have actually tracked it. But uh yeah, given that um, educational remit. In fact, another scene which is really well done, but it's kind of weird, is when the Doctor and Susan are having to travel inside the TARDIS because the Doctor is ill from the heat. Mm. And they lack water, of course. Yeah, with the condensation. And, yes, and Ian actually has to give a little science lesson about why condensation happens, because... Marco has seen it happen, but doesn't know what the mechanism 
is so by extension he's teaching the audience at home how condensation works but it's just kind of weird when you have moments like (laughs) that come up in a historical yeah i whenever he was jumping in i was like boy they really want us to know that ian knows his science like (laughs) it's not like a i usually i usually point to a later novelization where you can see the educational remit happening really hard but it's happening with a story that wasn't part of that remit in which two authors explain to the readers at home what a hologram is by defining Mm -hmm. it in the prose it's like oh my god i know what this is the people at home know what this is but you you can kind of see that that's what they're uh getting at maybe that doesn't work quite as well were there parts of this book that did not work for you quite as well mm. you take this down <laughs> i was I, there's there's nothing i can really think of right off the top of my head that that didn't really work for me um at times like i said as I was reading it, I didn't really mind all the, like, and then they went here, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. But once I finished, like I said, it, it felt like, could they have left some of that out? Could they have Could they have truncated it? Could they have, like, was every little detail of everything super important to the story? Yeah. <clears throat> um, I, I feel like some of it, maybe some of it was, you know, part of, part of it was, you know, making us really know Tigana's a bad guy, so let's, like, have... Five different instances of him being a bad guy. So you know he's the bad guy. It's you know, like, that was okay, pretty hardcore, right. though. Like, when he was, you know, Barbara and him, and they discovered the guy in the cave, and then he's just like, okay, I'm going to kill you now. I'm like, whoa, he's <laughs> he's actually kind of good. I'm like, I'm impressed with this guy. Yeah. But, like, even that shows the, the extent of his, like, his badness. Like, he does not want to be given away. So he, like, he kills his his own basic his, his own friend he's like i i, I cannot yeah. be discovered um and so yes part parts of that i mean when he goes out into the desert to meet up with the other caravan when he goes to the oasis by himself to talk to the other caravan like it, it just is like okay we get it like he's trying to screw them over he's trying to get the tardis yeah. for himself we get it we get it we get it stop it um and there's not a lot of motivation to it either, except that he wants to bring glory to his um, to his chief or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so- even Marco Polo's motivation about that. I'm like, Marco, maybe Kublai Khan doesn't even want this thing. Like, how do you know this is going to send him back to Venice for you? You don't actually <laughs> right. know that. You're going through an awful lot of trouble for this. I was just going to say, yeah, it's it, this weird blue box that you cannot get in that mysteriously, like, holds people comfortably and they travel in it. Like, what? Like, what? <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's um, not even like it's encrusted in diamonds or anything. It's not, like, inherently even valuable seating. Um. No. <laughs> oh, but it flies. It flies. But they haven't seen it That's fly. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. They've never That's seen true. it. It's hearsay. It's all just, like, talk. But, yeah, of course... There's no evidence. Yeah, this falls under one of those things that it's like, well, if we don't accept this, the narrative cannot run. So, fine, go for it. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, and we've already touched on this. I I don't have many things to criticize about this. Again, I, w- I was really charmed and quite pleased, especially after... Um, somewhat trudging again i'm sorry tony through uh edge of destruction but um <laughs> we i think we all agreed earlier that uh our, our female characters do get sort of a bad rap here um on page 18 i think like barbara is making comments about how handsome marco polo is and i made this note oh god is barbara's purpose to flirt with marco polo and then a little air off of it and oh. pincho and susan just get to cook like that's that's the, the as of page eighteen that was sort of where I was at at it. Now, nicely, it doesn't continue that way. Um, but no. I think it's also worth mentioning that Ping Cho and, and Susan they're still they're children, and the children can do interesting things in the story. But by the time Barbara, as a woman, is an adult character, and eh, she just goes off and gets in trouble and gets you know tied up because we're into to BSDM. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With, why not oh you can't abduct God. a woman without tying her up i mean it's that's just how it's got to be and it's so strange too because um i don't know if either or both of you will be um on the panel for the aztecs because that's only two books away from this one but when lucarati writes that story 
Barbara is the central character. She is the prime mover. <laughs> she is the one who does even more so than she does in Edge of Destruction. Mm. She sets herself against the Doctor and says, I know from my role as a history teacher that the Aztecs are going to be wiped out in a few decades. I'm going to save them, and you're not going to stop me. And, of course, spoiler alert, it all it all comes to nothing, mm. and she ends up not being able to save them at all. But he gives her such a centrally strong role in that story that when i see the way he treats her here it's like ah dude really why why is this just kind of like perils of pauline maybe he uh, had a change of heart about her that would be nice possibly i don't know possibly it may just very well be that this is such a different story and it's got a different reason for being told because i i honestly think it's all about the travel Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's the journey. It's not the end. It's the journey. Is uh, Luke well, yeah. still alive? Can we ask him? <laughs> no, he died in 94. Man and I wish, uh, right. I wish we could. But here's the thing. Lucarati himself was an avid traveler and had a, you know, that Wanderlust okay. and ended up, ended up dying in Paris, in hmm. fact. Yeah, so he traveled all over the place and, of course, went to Canada, which isn't exactly, you know, exotic. <laughs> but it certainly is for the British in the um, 1940s and 50s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know, very world, world, uh, not world weary. I was co- trying to come up with some other uh, descriptor. For Cosmopolitan. <laughs> yeah, there we go. That's it. <laughs> and I think that's what comes across. And I think that's what frustrates me the most about this book. Do tell. Um, yes, because I've been leading up to this, haven't I? Um, here's the thing. Uh, listening to the original audios yesterday and today... I was reminded that most of the actual trip is related in voiceover using Marco Polo's journal. He narrates the uh, journey. Oh. And you get one of those old-fashioned maps where you see the little yeah, dot okay, moving okay. along. <laughs> and it's really just so charming, even on audio, to have most of the story told from Marco's point of view. And... First of all, I think that's a missed opportunity on Lucarati's part. He could have made this novel a first-person narrative from Mar- uh, Marco's point of view yeah. and come up with a much more interesting story. Um, there is another author uh, named Donald Cotton, who we'll eventually get to, who uh, wrote three Hartnell stories and did novelizations for all of them in the 80s, and he did all of them as first-person narratives. Mm-hmm. And they are absolutely awesome. I love those stories to bits. And so when I look at this and I think, ah, why is he just kind of relating (laughs) what it is that Marco tells us on uh, screen instead of, you know, having Marco say it or something like that? That's a good question. And, you know, that that's a question sort of of how they he wants this narrative to play out and tensions to play out. Um, selecting your your pov and your narrator is is an important task um you have to think about that for a little bit Mm -hmm. and the other thing that frustrates me is especially when i got to the audio of episode two there is a beautiful scene which would um which would normally fall in chapter four in which barbara and susan are having a conversation and Barbara is explaining that she understands why the Doctor is isolating himself from the rest of the caravan, because he feels powerless without the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's this brilliant piece of character insight by Barbara, and it's necessary because uh, one of the production aspects in the 60s was that if an actor needed a vacation, they would simply write that actor's character out of the episode for that week. <laughs> So the Doctor does not appear in episode two of Marco Polo. William Hartnell's off fishing somewhere that week. <laughs> Literally, because that's one of the things he liked to do. So he doesn't appear in uh, in that sequence at all. And for some reason, Lucarati chops that out of this version of the story. It doesn't exist in any form. And it strikes me as almost criminal that Lucarati isn't including some of the best parts of his own script in his own uh, novelization. Yeah, and I would say that that part was one of the parts in here that confused me, that I'm like, wait, why is he going on a hunger strike? And, like, for no reason. And then I was like, oh, okay, I think I kind of get this. But 
we would have understood that a lot better with that piece. Yeah. 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 That he's not on screen at all for that 25 minutes. And uh, it makes a lot more sense in context here. I think they take the food into him. They force him to eat and he's fine. Yes. And it kind of ruins that little bit of uh, development, which is this kind of a shame. Really. Yeah. As for other things, <laughs> God, I'm trying. I'm really trying hard not to slam Lucarati here, but he has plenty of opportunities to make Marco sympathetic and make us understand why he sees the TARDIS. He particularly doesn't do this in Chapter Nine, and it feels to me like it's. Is it bad writing keeping him from doing so, or is he not doing it for other reasons? In Chapter 10, for instance, we are told in a line of exposition that Marco is fighting off his conscience. Hmm. <laughs> it doesn't even come from Marco's point of view. It just says, Marco was fighting his conscience. And a little later we get more of his doubts, but it's very brief. And I'm getting the sense from the two of you that, that that's fine, that... <laughs> As long as you get that. No, 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 I'm not saying that it's fine. That I, I mean that you, you were still able to enjoy the story without having that sort of internal monologue going. Yeah, I guess I kind of just accepted the fact that, like, Marco wasn't, he wasn't being malicious. He just, re- he, he wanted to get home as well. And so he was doing something that he thought was going to get him back there faster better safer and it's one of those situations where like like the doctor explains like he knows what happens to marco he knows he gets back home or he he knows he knows what comes of it so it's kind of just like the doctor knows that ultimately whatever happens with them isn't going to go as well as he expects yeah it seems like there should be more of that even though because you get barbara saying i know you'll make it home but she doesn't obviously explain why but there's not even any sort of internal monologue in which she says, you know, Barbara's caught in a dilemma. Should she reveal to him that she actually knows something of his future, or should she simply pass it off as hope? Yeah. And I think that comes back to, again, the choices that the writer has to make at the outset of setting up these narratives. Of, like, what yeah. kind of narrative am I going to have this be? And Edge of Destruction, right, something that was very character-driven, that we, you know, um, Robinson had to work hard to put plot points in that narrative because it wasn't about action or um, events that drove things. It was the internal thoughts and conflicts and beliefs or expectations and how those were being um, satisfied or denied in the characters' minds. In this story, right away, I'm like, okay, this isn't going to be about what anybody thinks or feels. This is just going to be about what's kind of happening on the outside. And we're presented with some very simple desires. You know, Marco Polo, I want to go home. Um, Crew from the TARDIS, hey, we want to go home too, but our ship is broken. Okay, but that's it. Let's let it go. And (laughs) when... The, when mm-hmm. I read that that's happening, I'm kind of like, okay, this is the this is the type of plot that I'm being given. It's going to be more event-driven. It's not going to be so introspective. So then I'm willing to kind of follow it along. And I did, I think, have a question um, about, you know, the same thing about, like, what will Barbara say? How much will she say she knows about the future? I had a little question in my head. I was like, oh, you know, when these people, like, fly around in time, do they, like, worry so much about kind of the impact that they're having? Because, of course, I'm from, like, Later you know, on, back of back to the future kind of um, era where it's like, no, you must not be seen, you know? And I'm thinking clearly they don't give a crap about that because they're doing all kinds of stuff. Um, Like this is crazy. Uh, But again, and even there was a moment when, you know, they first met and I was like, wait, wouldn't Marco Polo be suspicious about their clothes? And then I think four pages later, he makes some sort of passing mention like, oh yeah, they have strange clothes. But I'm like, well, and the way that the author is making him treat it, this doesn't seem like such a big deal. So I just don't think it's going to be a big deal. That's not what the author wants us to get out of this book. So whatever, I'll follow along. Um, Well, to answer that earlier question, um, you should definitely be with us when we discuss the Aztecs because Lucarati is going to tackle that question head on like a linebacker. (laughs) The whole idea of can history be rewritten? And he'll do it in such a way that it really resonates all the way down through the rest of the series. And... 
Um, just as a side note, got me uh, three free Doctor Who books when I asked uh, when I wrote a letter about it to Doctor Who magazine a few years back, <laughs> because uh, it comes up in a later story, a David Tennant story called "The Fires of Pompeii," mm. when the Doctor and his companion land in Pompeii on Volcano Day, yeah. and the whole conflict is: Do we allow all of these people to die? Ah. And the Doctor says, "We have yes. to." Because it's it's a fixed point in time. This happens. It always happened. It always will happen. Uh, Battlestar Galactica fans will probably know what that's like. You know, this has happened. It will happen. And it's one little thing that makes that basically breaks the contract for the Doctor. And he says, "Okay, this is this this changes things. I can fix this." But he still can't save the city. Mm-hmm. He can only save one family. Mm-hmm. And even that is breaking the laws of time to some degree. But it's Lucarati's story of the Aztecs that you finally get that promulgation of what those laws of time okay. are. Here, you're absolutely right. They're they're basically joining Marco Polo at just, you know, a Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, it just happens to be traveling. Tagana happens to be with them. Probably the only thing that they change is that Tagana probably would have been successful somehow had they not arrived in, I don't know what Tagana's trying to do in this book, to be honest, but he would have been successful at it. Maybe yeah, that's perhaps it. there would have been some other way that he was trying to, to sabotage um, Marco Polo and not have to concede this, this defeat. Um, who knows? Yeah. Possibly. Before we wrap things up, and I, I know we're running late oh, on time, fine. but probably the thing that I really dislike most about Lucarati's writing style, I'm Please. sorry, I'm going to launch right into it, is the fact that he reports everything. And it's indirect, it's not even quotation most of the time, it's indirect quotation. And some of it is what I call blink and you miss it moments. That, that opening chapter, I almost expected Jenny in particular to have looked at it and said, you know, I don't know what's going on here because they launch right into things. But we had just come off Edge of Destruction, so you had that, you know, preparation for it. I'm sure if somebody came to that this novel and they wrote uh, looked at the first chapter, they would say, TARDIS? What's a TARDIS? And who are these people? And oh my god, where am I? You know, but it's particularly bad when we get to the killing of Tagana, mm. that when you get to that uh, moment, it's on page 143 in the print version, and it's page 121 in the uh, PDF, um, I actually had to reread it to find out what happened. Uh, this is the one, the doctor said, and turned the knob, the wall sprung open, and they went into the gaming room. Be prepared, Ling Tao, the doctor whispered. Ling Tao charged his bow as the doctor peeked through the Judas eye. Kublai is still alive, he reported, and twisted the knob on the pedestal. The inner wall swung open. Tagana never saw the flight of the arrow that killed him instantly. And we're done. <laughs> it's like, it's so desultory. That description is so desultory. And um, the way that Ping Cho's intended husband uh, is just kind of dispatched off screen. It's like, oh, he wanted to, you know invoke Pon Far a little early and he drank some stuff that killed him. It's like, uh, what? The hell? I, uh... Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess you're right. Um, I don't know why... Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't care that much. <laughs> <laughs> it's just... Well, that's the problem, I think. I mean, Tagana's kind of snidely whiplash throughout this book, but you'd think that we've been vil- uh, villainized by this character for so long that when he finally gets killed... They'd at least give it, you know, that uh, Lucarati would give it more than one line of uh, dialogue that uh, you can kind of blink and miss. Akomat, when he dies, <clears throat> when the bandits attack, he goes down really quick. The entire attack is over in like three sentences. Mm-hmm. And that's the bomb of page 87 in the print version. So, the master of the world's a warlord, Tagana, is awake, he cried, just before Tagana cut him down. <laughs> he's dead yeah, yeah. it's like um, the hell <laughs> yeah it's 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 crazy like the i whenever i read i have a tendency to look at page numbers and know how much i have left i'm that i'm that person and yeah i, I was mm-hmm. i was reading and reading and reading i'm like i only have 10 pages left when is this resolution gonna happen what's gonna yeah and it's the yeah. last two pages of the book 
And yeah. it's just like, it's gone. It's over so fast. And it seems odd to me that it occurs to me that Lucarati's favorite part of the story is the sections with Kublai Khan and the description of the Summer Palace. Mm. Because it's in those parts of the book that you get the sort of description and in-depth stuff that you do not get in the rest of the story. Mm. I can... It's almost... Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, I can ahead. see that, because they're nice. Yeah. They're, they're just really lovely. And it's as if he was told, okay... You have 140 pages. You have seven episodes of script to kind of condense into that space. And he has the exact opposite problem that Nigel Robinson had with Edge of Destruction. He's got to condense it down. I think, but this is just me personally, I think he condenses it too far down. Yeah, I guess it's, it would be hard for me to know, um, not having seen the, the show. But there is a narrative <laughs> arc here that I think works fairly well. Um, we okay. have the, and I'm, I'm not going to remember my exact terms. Um, these are, are kind of film class slash like narrative terms that I think of. We have kind of the inciting incident. I think, I think that actually is what it's called. What the heck? Um, yeah. <laughs> the inciting incident of like, Hey, our ship is broken and, and we're here, which happens, you know, immediately. Then we get to meet Marco Polo. Um, then tensions are kind of developing between, um, Marco Polo's plan to to take this, and then Tagana's, I think, competing plan to take it for for his own um, you know purposes. Then we get our midpoint right. twists of okay, they tried to escape, didn't work. Um, then we we continue on. We get to the Emperor. We have this other stuff. Uh, it fits. It works. There is nothing to me that I felt really off. I think the ending, you're right, is a little bit rushed, but um, it wasn't. It wasn't too terrible. <laughs> okay, I, <clears throat> I'm on, I'm I'm willing to be persuaded. <laughs> it it just feels to me, and it, it may also be that to be honest, I really hate um, historical stories in Doctor mm. Who. Even though the Aztecs is probably one of my favorite stories from the Hartnell era and the entire series, and but this one I think kind of embodies everything that I don't like about the historicals. <laughs> That being mm -hmm. said, I've been enjoying the audio, so I don't know really what the problem is except for Lucarati's specific writing style in this book. So, And I think mine is the minority opinion because uh, on Goodreads, <laughs> the reviews were, again, much more strong. Mm. So as we always do, what a segue, right? Uh, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers, then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, simply read the book, write a review on Goodreads, and then write a comment on our Facebook page so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves, and you may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating on Goodreads is... 3.67 out of 5 stars, which is higher than Edge of Destruction, to my amazement. Nice. Um, I'm going to read you just a few of the reviews. Uh, Dan, who rated the review, uh, the book 4 stars, writes, I was surprised to find I rather enjoyed it. In my head, Marco Polo was a dull story where nothing happened and with not much going for it. I was mostly wrong. I have to concede that in many ways this is quite dull. The novelization zooms through the plot fairly quickly. The TV story must have felt very slow. But even then, not much happens for much of the book. And this is a four-star rating, by the way. <laughs> the traitor within, here in the form of Tagana, is a tried and tested story, and it works well here, although his plots to kill them all are farcically resolved. What works really well is here is the characters used. It's fun having Marco Polo involved, and he comes across as a decent but not entirely moral man. The Doctor becoming friends with the similarly aged Kublai Khan who hides his gambling from his wife is really good fun and was my favorite part. I also felt the character Susan worked unusually well here as she had fellow teen teenager Ping Cho to talk to and become friends with. I'm struggling to think of another time when Susan actually has a proper friend she can talk to on her level. And he's right, that, never, that almost never yeah. happens. Let me skip ahead to Leo H, who only gave it two stars, and he says, fairly straightforward novelization of what appears to be a fairly straightforward early Doctor Who story. 
Uh, Marco Polo sort of kidnaps the Doctor and his companions. They travel for a bit th- towards China. They stop for a bit, have some food, <laughs> which is explained in minute detail and maybe quite hungry. The Mongol warlord Batty accompanying Marco Polo's party tries some treachery and is foiled by the Doctor Ian Susan. Barbara didn't have much to do in this one. Then they start off traveling and it all happens all over again. It's a bit like Wacky Races, actually, come to think of it, with Tagana the Mongol playing the part of Dick Dastardly. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Which is hilarious. The ending is very rushed. The Mongol warlord Batty suddenly decides, right, well, I'm going to go and kill Kublai Khan now. And the doctor stops him, which prompts Kublai Khan to give back the TARDIS, and then they leave. It literally takes about a page and a half to go from we're stuck here forever to that's us off then. Bye, everyone. Fairly enjoyable overall and never boring, just not a massive amount going on. Yeah, so let's have your... Uh, ratings of this book jenny out of five stars what would you give i'm i'd give it like a 4.5 out of five uh i i thought it was highly enjoyable (laughs) and i'm kind of laughing because out of those two reviewers the one who gave it the four star actually seemed like he enjoyed it less than the one who gave it the two stars um (laughs) i don't know from their description uh the the subjectivity of of star ratings but yeah I, i thought it was was great fun and i i think that the author set out a set of expectations he continued with the expectations and i respected him for that uh but this is why it's fun i think for uh you, Tony, to assemble the panels in this fashion because everyone is coming from a, a different perspective and we can all appreciate mm-hmm. and, and learn from why we each are viewing this in their own way. And that's that's the merit of this. Okay, well, thank you for that. <laughs> no, of thank you. Uh, all right, Dalton, how do you uh, feel about it? How uh, many stars would you give it out of five? I, I think, again, I'm going to go with, like, 3.75, leaning into <laughs> a four. Like, um... For completely different reasons, though, like Edge of Destruction, I liked because it was it was a quick read and it was it was suspenseful and it was a lot of character development. This one I liked for you know I liked the setting, I liked the story, I liked the romance of 13th century traveling uh, caravans like mm-hmm. through the desert. It, it was it seems you know like we talked about the scene with the moonlight and the did you touch a star like yeah very cinematic. Just, yeah, very cinematic, very, very much like starry-eyed for me. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I really like that stuff. Um, yeah, my own really complaint is, yeah, the ending just like it's so quick and so just like Zoop. it. It's so just what? Um, and I think I think yeah, you and I I message. talked about like the the show itself was how many episodes? Seven. Seven, Seven episodes. episodes, and they were, what, one a week? Yep, uh, 25 minutes so, each, thereabouts. So you're waiting... It's a long Yeah, story. you're waiting for seven weeks for that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. In the audio version, if you listen to the story, it's much more, it's much more satisfying. Mm-hmm. Those moments are given a lot more weight. Okay. Yeah, and I don't know why, and I agree with you, I don't know why Luke Roddy doesn't give the same weight to the page, because he could... So, yeah. obviously, I I obviously disagree <laughs> with the high ratings, but after listening again to parts of the, the original story in preparation for this podcast, I have to admit I'm a little more impressed with the story than I used to be, because parts of it, even in audio form, are very suspenseful. The, um, the laughter in the Singing Sands episode is just chilling, mm. as is the Doctor's voice coming across the desert. I can't say the same for this book. It's almost as if Lucarati, knowing how much he had to write for the original seven episodes and had to condense it into 144 pages, decided to compress the story as much as he possibly could, avoiding descriptions of key characters in certain situations, reporting dialogue rather than actually letting us hear it. I know when I was 15, I was mainly disappointed in this book because I already knew I disliked the historicals. <laughs> and I'd already seen an, an, an amazing 1982 NBC miniseries about Marco Polo uh, starring Ken Marshall, which won the Emmy that year for Outstanding Limited Series. So I was already predisposed. If they didn't do Marco Polo well, I wasn't going <laughs> to like it. This version of Marco, especially given the limited characterization Lucarati gives him, He's just a flat character with very little motivation, not much better than Tagana. And I may change this opinion when I reread the Aztecs in a few weeks, but I don't remember that book being nearly so disappointing. 
And it seems to me like Lucarati is better at depicting historical events rather than the characters. So I'm giving this one two out of five. It's not awful. It's pretty damn close. <laughs> it could have been so much better. That's the way I feel about this one. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Alrighty. So thank you guys again for t- participating well, in this podcast. Yeah, thanks. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time yet again. Next time, we'll be reading Doctor Who and the Keys of Baroness. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. If you add a comment on that page, if you think there's something we missed here, or you just want to tell us you like us using your words, you'll be entered in our fourth Target book giveaway. This time, some lucky rant of that. Some lucky fan randomly picked by me will get a gently used copy of Doctor Who and the Tenth Planet. Woo! Exactly. Check our Facebook page at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces for more details. Also feel free to give us a thumbs up on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter. We are at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice if you really like us. Or if you really, really don't like us, Post your comments, suggestions, questions on any or all of the above platforms, or email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, and as always, enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.